On the 27th of April 2019, Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un convened in Vietnam for a second top-level meeting. After the groundbreaking first summit in Singapore, which was declared a huge success by many, the second meeting between the two leaders in Hanoi brought with it much expectation. However, Talks between US President Trump and Kim Jong-un ended abruptly in Hanoi last month. No agreement, no deal, no lunch even. Sometimes you have to walk. In the aftermath of the summit, it seemed to many as if it had only succeeded in raising more questions than answers. So, in order for me to find out some of these answers, I spoke to, returning guest on our podcast, an accomplished peace builder, Mary Joyce. Hello and welcome to Season 2 of The Peace Corner. I'm Ben Cave and this week we are discussing denuclearization, women in the peace process and the Trump-Kim summit in Hanoi. To find out about all this and more, I am speaking to Mary Joyce. Now, Mary is not only the Northeast Asia Regional Liaison for GPAC, but she is also an activist with the Tokyo-based NGO Peaceboat, which, if you haven't heard of, is an excellent organization doing some incredible work. I very much recommend checking it out. On top of all this, she also works with Women Cross DMZ and is a huge part of their new campaign, Korea Peace Now. Mary, have I got all that correct? That is right, yes. And within these positions, your roles include coordinating civil society projects for dialogue, peace building, disarmament, and peace education in the region, correct? Exactly, yes, that's what we're doing. So today we're talking about the Korean Peninsula, as that is quite a hot topic following on from the uh, recent reunification of some families in the area and, of course, the Trump-Kim summit in Hanoi. Um, So... After the, Hanoi, there were, after the Hanoi summit, there was a mixed response from the international community. Some saw it as a failure, while others noted several causes for optimism. As someone who's heavily involved in the area, could you give us a brief summary of the recent developments? Sure. Well, of course, uh, a lot of the world's media and so on was really paying attention to what was happening in Hanoi, um, being very historic as the second ever summit between the GPRK or North Korea and the United States. Many people were hoping that this summit would really lead to a concrete agreement, um, whether something as sort of ambitious or, um, you know, significant as actually declaring an end to the Korean War, which has now been going on for close to 70 years, or even uh, much smaller agreements, but on some practical steps towards uh, cooperation or steps towards the peace process, for example, uh, setting up joint liaison offices in North Korea, for example, or setting some of the steps towards opening diplomatic channels again. Um, Unfortunately, as we all saw in the news, things did not unfold that way. The summit ended without any kind of concrete agreement, uh, which was a source for huge disappointment for everybody who was, of course, watching and involved in the peace process or peace movement for the Korean Peninsula. However, at the same time, the fact that both of the governments involved did walk away, at least saying they were willing to continue the talks, that the dialogue would continue, is when we consider how critical the situation is there and also how difficult it has been to really make any progress in, well, decades, we could say. The fact that there is at least still that space for moving forward in the negotiations is something which we are welcoming. So you spoke of some of the aims of peace builders in the area. What were the uh, what were your hopes realistically in the build up to the summit? You and the organisations you work with. Sure, I think there was, especially listening to some of the sort of rhetoric which was coming out from the involved governments before the summit. A lot of people were really hoping for very big results from uh, this summit. You know, even actually. Um, 
an end to the Korean War, really looking for a declaration from the two countries as a step towards moving towards a peace treaty or peace agreement in whatever form that may end up taking. Um, of course, considering the fact that it has been 70 years since, um, well, you know, the, the Korean War and that it is still just in an armistice situation, it is still really just in a ceasefire. The war is ongoing and thinking about the critical situation and also the millions of people on the Korean Peninsula, but also in the Northeast Asia region that's impacting. That was really the the high hope. I think a lot of people were even getting ready to celebrate the end of the war after that summit. Unfortunately, we saw that that didn't end up being the case. Right. And um, you said you were hoping or some people were hoping for a peace treaty. Why exactly is it that a peace treaty is so important to the area and to the uh, Korean people? Sure. I think the fact that we can really see it's all these different steps, you know, going back and forward and really the critical situation, you know, the threats of even a potential nuclear war breaking out on the Korean peninsula shows that this as one of the the longest running wars in the world, the fact that it has been 70 years, still just in a ceasefire situation shows that it is really critical. Um, Also, this is affecting, of course, not only the Korean Peninsula, but really overall peace and security in the Northeast Asian region as well. And when we're talking about the nuclear issue, it involves, of course, not only North Korea's nuclear program, but also the US presence in Northeast Asia with its significant military bases in South Korea and Japan. Also, the neighbors being, you know, Russia and China. This is a very volatile region. And if any kind of armed conflict were to break out, which uh, the risk is there when it is still just in the armistice situation, it would have huge implications for millions of people in the region. Yes, and with the tensions between US and China. Then exactly. Risky path to be going exactly. Um, so the initial reaction was one of disappointment you mentioned. Now that the dust has settled a little bit, how, how do you feel now? Do you have cause for optimism or is it still further back than what you intended. Sure. I think it's it's still a very difficult situation that we are facing, but I think the fact that this meeting between the two leaders didn't end up resulting in an agreement has just highlighted the need for a more comprehensive process, for a process where civil society can be involved, for a process where it's not only led by well, these two leaders who are not necessarily the most you know, people you would necessarily look towards for building peace. I mean, when we consider their situation domestically in both of these countries, um, it's really highlighting the fact that there needs to be much more space for civil society to be involved. There needs to be a much more substantial peace process, which has the buy-in of people in the different countries. And there needs to be also, for example, women's involvement in this as well is something which I think can really help make this a more sustained peace process rather than putting all of the eggs into the basket of just hoping for the summary between these two these two leaders. Yeah, I mean, I think the uh, the actions of the leaders post the summit has been uh, quite surprising, actually. No uh, sweeping declarations or rapid fire tweets coming out. So I think that is yeah. cause for optimism. Exactly, like, exactly. Yeah. There is there's always room for optimism and room to hope that we can still yeah. keep moving forward. Has the uh, the result of this summit changed how you will be operating with Peace Boat and the other organisations you work with? Sure. I think in some ways it's really emphasized a lot of the things which we were already uh, feeling or focusing on. The need to try and have more channels for civil society dialogue in relation to this. The need to have more engagement, not only with uh, North and South Korea and the United States, but also looking for what kind of multilateral engagement can be done involving other countries in the region. And also the need to have more public support, I think, for this peace process as well. I think especially when we look at the situation in the United States, really the domestic situation there um, is playing a huge role in terms of 
how this peace process can move forward. And well, we may, of course, all have our opinions about uh, Trump and his administration, particularly in a lot of what they're doing domestically. At the same time, I think we really need to look at how important this Korean peace process is for the people in Korea, but also in the broader region and see how there can be a mobilization of support for this process, regardless of who it might be that's leading it. So the, uh, the peace process is quite intrinsically linked to the domestic US situation. Exactly. And I think that was really evident in terms of what was happening in Hanoi and the timing of, you know, of course, everything that was happening back in the United States at the same time. So like you mentioned, it is a potentially volatile and obviously globally globally watched area. So what are the biggest challenges for you and local peace builders when you're operating in that environment? Sure. I mean, I think in terms of the local challenges, uh, many of parts of Northeast Asia, there isn't necessarily a tradition of civil society involvement in a lot of these things, especially because it is a situation which involves nuclear weapons and these very heavy state-focused security elements. Being able to ensure that people's voices and civil society voices are reflected in this is, of course, a challenge. Um, and it's something which is reflected internationally. I think there's often a lot of skepticism about whether you know dialogue with North Korea is possible, for example. But I think the critical nature of this situation really shows that any kind of channels and space for this sort of thing must be expanded in order to actually have some kind of a sustainable process in place. Yeah. You mentioned uh, denuclearization there. And is that one of the areas that you're involved with the most? That is certainly one of the focus areas for us. Uh, Peace Boat as an organization, but also many of our regional members in GPAC Northeast Asia are very heavily involved in uh, movement for denuclearization. Uh, One of the points we're really emphasizing here is that a lot of the attention is, of course, on the denuclearization of North Korea, which is a key part. But we also really need to recognize the other nuclear threats which are present in the region. This, of course, includes also the responsibilities that the United States has for removing the nuclear threat in the region. And also for other regional countries, including South South Korea and Japan, for somehow trying to build security policies which are not relying on the nuclear deterrent, which is currently provided through the United States nuclear umbrella in the region as well. So looking at how there can be a very comprehensive discussion on denuclearization and demilitarization in the region, rather than focusing on one particular actor or one particular country, but look at what kind of regional mechanisms can be set in place. Okay, interesting. And so obviously denuclearization was one of the one of the sticking points in the summit, the other being the economic sanctions. Do the local peace builders and the organization you work with look at this as well as an area that needs to be improved? Very much. And that's actually uh, one of the issues which we've really been discussing about how to how we need to be working towards that issue as well, particularly when we're looking at sanctions which are impacting the humanitarian field in the DPRK. Um, We've had recent reports from the United Nations agencies who are active in North Korea talking about the critical humanitarian situation which is going on there. And at the same time, for example, some of our South Korean members have been involved in humanitarian efforts to bring um, medicine, for example, um, to be treated for tuberculosis or influenza and so on in South, in sorry, in North Korea. However, not actually being able to transport that medicine because the vehicles which are used for the transport are subject to the sanctions which are in place at the moment. Uh, there was also the case where a North South 
uh, Korean civil society meeting or citizens meeting was held. However, reporters who were due to accompany this process were not allowed to bring their laptops in, for example, because the uh, the sort of equipment included in laptops and some of the metal items was subject to these sanctions. So I think the fact that it's impacting the humanitarian field and it's also impacting even the sharing of information or the sort of opening up of the free press in terms of what's actually happening in these inter-Korean discussions and so on is a real source of concern. And it's something which we as GPAC Northeast Asia, but also many other civil society groups who are fe- uh, focusing on the Korean Peninsula are really looking at what kind of discussions we need to be having to highlight uh, how these sanctions are really impeding the peace process and, of course, impacting the North Korean people on a day-to-day situation as well. Yeah, of course. So it's, like we said, it's a volatile area, but how do you think it differs from other areas when it comes to promoting your ideals and achieving peace? Do you think it's quite a different situation from others across the globe? Sure. I mean, I think the fact that the conflict has been going on now for 70 years, um, Of course, it's not the only sort of long-running conflict in the world, but it is something which really um, is a particular characteristic. And it's almost like the Cold War structures are still in place in Northeast Asia, of course, on the Korean Peninsula, but also looking at the relations between other countries in the region as well. So this is something which is quite... Uh, peculiar, shall we say, to the region. Um, Also, at the same time, I think there has been for a long time a perception that there's not really much that can be done there. There's just sort of the emphasis on keeping the status quo. But now that there are finally these different moves towards dialogue, and particularly after the so-called candlelight revolution in South Korea and the the new government under uh, President Moon coming in, it's really showing that there is finally a sort of diplomatic opening to take place and civil society can play a role there. Of course, yes, the South Korean summits as well have been advancing progress recently. Very much. Would you say the last few years have been some of the most productive in the area? Hugely. I would say, uh, especially after close to 10 years where there was a real stalemate in a lot of ways, where even civilian exchange was prohibited, particularly under the previous uh, conservative governments in South Korea. It was a very uh, difficult climate to be able to have any kind of civil society input into the peace process, well, or even any peace process actually existing, to mm. be honest. And so the change, I would say, in the past two years has been hugely dramatic, um, thanks largely to the civil society-led or citizen-led movement in South Korea, which led to this new government, but also the various other openings up for channels of dialogue and so on, which has finally started. Uh, one of the organizations you work with that looks into this kind of dialogue is the Woman Cross DMZ. Could you elaborate a little bit more about their aims, their goals, and your, your work with them? Of course, yes. So Women Cross DMZ is a movement which began in 2015. Um, at the time, a group of 30 women peacemakers from around the world um, led by uh, an activist called Christine Ahn, but also featuring participation of Nobel Peace Laureates and also the uh, sort of groundbreaking feminist Gloria Steinem, uh, were involved in actually organizing a women's peace walk in both North and South Korea and crossing the DMZ, hence hence the name of the movement. Uh, so this took place in May in 2015. I was one of the 30 women who was able to join this peace walk. And since then, we have uh, built this into a larger campaign. Uh, Most recently, actually just two weeks ago, uh, as Women Cross DMZ launching a new global campaign together with several other coalition members, uh, including the Nobel Women's Initiative, WILF, which is the world's largest, or sorry, oldest uh, feminist peace organization, 
and also the South Korean Women's Movement for Peace, which is a South Korean coalition which actually includes many GPAC members. So these four organizations have come together to launch what we're calling the Korea Peace Now campaign. It was just officially announced uh, or launched, sorry, in Washington, D.C. and New York earlier this month. And this is aiming to raise awareness globally about the need for a peace treaty and also the importance of having civil society and particularly women involved in this process. Yes. Uh, Actually, on that subject, would you be able to uh, speak a little more to exactly why it is so important that women are involved in peace processes? Sure. I think from a lot of research and, of course, including the experience of many GPAC members in other parts of the world, it's... Uh, been very much proven that when women are involved in peace processes, they are not only more successful in terms of, of achieving an agreement, but actually also in terms of being lasting and sustaining as well. And so these different experiences, whether it's from you know women in Liberia or uh, Northern Ireland or different parts of the world, have really demonstrated that when women are at the table and are able to bring in these different perspectives into the process, it means that the process is very much more uh, long-lasting and sustainable as well. Therefore, we're hoping um, to be able to bring that experience from women peace builders who have been involved in processes in other parts of the world and use that towards the process now in Korea. With regards to Northeast Asia, is there anything specific that you think people should know about the current situation? Anything that's maybe not getting enough, enough attention or is just being overlooked by the general community? Sure. I think a lot of the time when we are talking about Northeast Asia and particularly what's happening now in North Korea, people can tend to really focus on the the big state diplomacy side of things, you know, the Trumps and the Kims and the these big pictures and the, the nuclear weapons and these kind of aspects. But at the same time, I think one of the things that is really not uh, seen enough or perhaps not spoken about, particularly within the English language uh, overseas community, is really the initiatives and the roles that the Korean people themselves are taking. Uh, We mentioned briefly before about the inter-Korean initiatives which are happening at the moment, but there has been so much going on in this past year uh, or two in terms of dialogue uh, between the two Koreas, cooperation on very specific projects, um, also really moving towards a very concrete uh, peace process in a really long-term kind of way. And I think a lot of this is really not reflected within the the international discourse about what's happening there. Um, Not only this, but also really the importance or the real strong desire of the Korean people to actually have peace there as well, considering that they have been living in this state of war for 70 years, is something which hopefully we can really uh, amplify their voices about a lot more through this new campaign. Absolutely. I would say the uh, the Trump Come Summit's received maybe disproportionate more coverage than the South Korea and North Korea summits. Exactly. Two, there's been three of them to this point. Yeah, yeah on, on the top level, three more. But in terms of working level or official level meetings, there has been hundreds of meetings actually over the past year, which is something I think is really neglected a lot. Great. Thank you. So um, for this series, we've added a section at the end where we're going to ask two fixed questions to all of our peace builders um, with the hope of comparing their answers and finding out a little bit about what peace building means in different areas of the world, the similarities and the differences. So first, what is something you hope to see achieved in the world of peace building globally or locally within the next year? Oh, that's a big question. (laughs) I think if we are to continue on, on the sort of issue of the Korean Peninsula, I think I really hope there can be an intensified attention from the international community on the need for the peace process, um, recognizing that it isn't just something which 
is being led by Trump and Kim, but this is really something that the Korean people themselves are leading and is really needed, not only for the Korean Peninsula, but really for peace in the broader Northeast Asian region as well. So I hope there can be uh, more attention on some of the more nuanced parts of what's happening in Korea and at the same time more support for what a lot of the people there are really trying to do. Thank you. And finally, if you could debunk one myth or common misconception about the peace building process, what would that be? What would you like to tell people? Sure. I guess, again, to take the Korea example, there is often a lot of skepticism about whether anything can really be done with North Korea. Of course, there's a lot of people, particularly within the more mainstream media, about whether they can be trusted, if there is even any will for denuclearization and so on. But I think if you're going into a process or going into negotiations with that kind of starting point, of course, it will be impossible to build the kind of trust to actually make a long-lasting impact and to make change in the situation as well. So I think um, rather than treating North Korea as this very strange, peculiar country that doesn't act like anyone else, I think we really need to look at how they can also be well recognized as a country which may not fit the ideology of many other people, but which can actually be a partner in negotiations. And that's the only way we're ever actually going to bring about any any change in the region as well, is by actually not looking at it as a very peculiar, ridiculous situation, but really as somewhere where concrete progress needs to happen. And uh, lifting the economic sanctions, bringing them into national trade would be a vital step in that regard. Process. Exactly, exactly. I think when we're also considering, you know, related issues such as, you know, human rights is, of course, one issue which is always uh, high on the agenda for North Korea. But without actually opening up the discussion towards peace, towards looking at how to bring them as part of the international community, it's very difficult to address any of the human rights concerns which may be in place. On the topic of human rights, what would you say to those who have issues raising economic sanctions on a country that has reported human rights issues, or that lifting the economic sanctions would cause us to lose leverage in the denuclearization discussion? What would you say to people who have that argument? Sure. I mean, I think there is often the argument that, you know, it's because of the sanctions that North Korea is now coming to the negotiations table. But I really would disagree with that. I would say that looking at the the history of sanctions and the history of North Korea's actions, that is certainly not the case. Um, And it's rather looking at diplomacy and how this can be used as well. I think sanctions have not had the effect that many people say they have. Um, Of course, there are various different opinions in terms of how the sanctions should be lifted or to what stage, what kind of sanctions. But I think the first step to really look at is the humanitarian uh, related sanctions as well and to see how that is affecting really on a day-to-day basis. This is affecting not the regime, not the government, but this is really affecting the North Korean people who should not be you know, held hostage as a result of these political situations. It could be argued that the sanctions themselves are contributing massively to the humanitarian crisis. Exactly. I would very much say so. Great. Well, thank you very much for talking to us today, Mary. It's been a pleasure. Thanks very much. Well, that's it for today's episode of The Peace Corner. Thank you for listening to The Voices Making Peace Possible. Tune in next time when our knowledge, policy, advocacy and gender intern, Amanda, talks to Miguel Alvarez-Gandara about peace and conflict in Latin America. 